0: Good morning, Crossway. This morning's sermon text is from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Philippians, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Thank you, Fu.
1: We're looking at really Paul's continued greeting, and he introduces it with a prayer, or actually a record of his prayer. And just to make the point, Scripture does not record these prayers so that we say, Oh, look, Paul prayed. He records these prayers that we might be guided and instructed into the types of things we should pray for, the types of things we should value, and, and how we should consider the work of church life in terms of prayer. So he he has two sections, and I'm just introducing this section. Uh, This morning in in verses 3 through 8, where he's giving thanksgiving and praise, and then in the second part, verses 9 and following, he's giving a petition. And so we'll kind of look at those in two distinct things this morning. We're going to look at that praise. If you look at verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. Like, this is a full call of prayer, isn't it? Always, in every prayer, every time I remember you, he is rejoicing and thanking God for them. I think, I think his consideration here is in light of the judgment of Christ. If you look down into verse 6, he says that this good work God is doing through them is going to continue until the day of Jesus Christ. you look down again into the following verses, if you look down in verse uh, 10... He wants and prays for them to be pure and blameless on that day of Jesus Christ. He's calling them to consider and to be, and to be thinking about and preparing for the return of Jesus Christ when they'll be judged. That's not a very comforting thought for many people, but it's a, it's a thought that the apostle calls the Philippians to be considering. And I think there's a lot of times, in fact, a common measurement that infects and slows us all down in our pursuit of Christ. It's, it's kind of the mentality, you might have heard this joke in one form or another, as two joggers are preparing to jog through the mountains in a country that commonly would have bears in it, and one of the joggers asks the other one, so do you have any bear repellent? he goes, no, I don't need bear repellent, I just need to be faster than you. There is a Christian ethic that measures our safety before the judgment of Christ by simply being a little bit better, a little bit more godly, a little bit more faithful than the guy next to us. Just a little faster than the bear, or a little faster than you when the bear comes. Let me ask you, do you think at all that is how Scripture calls us to get ready for the day of Jesus Christ? So I think that the, the, the thought in Paul here at the beginning is these people cause him a delight and a gratitude and a joy as he considers them. And he wants the, them to continue so that when Jesus sees them, there is a rich reward for the righteousness that God has accomplished through them. So what defines a person who's ready to see Jesus to experience the joy of his Savior and stirs up the type of gratitude the Philippians experience as Paul considers them. Every time he prays, he's thanking God for them. Wouldn't you like that to be said of you? Every time the Apostle Paul thinks about you, he starts just giving praise to God? I mean, do you have someone in your life where every time you think about them, you start praying for God's judgment? Or you start praying for a rescue from them? Every time Paul thinks of the Philippians he starts praising and worshiping God. So what defines a life that's so worthy of admiration? What defines a church that stirs up such deep joy and praise as the apostle considers them? It's certainly not the attitude of just being a little bit better than the guy next to you. What defines the person who causes praise to God? What defines that person? I think if you start out in verse 3, you'll see that this person is committed to gospel partnership. This person is committed to gospel partnership. Look down at verse 3 with me. This effusive praise that bubbles up in um, honoring God and praying out thanksgiving to God is in verse 4 defined as always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because, verse 5, of what? Your partnership in God the gospel. That's the word fellowship, that we have that that word partnership there. It means to participate, take part in. It does not mean to have chit-chat with burritos. I mean, I realize we're getting some food trucks, and one of them happens to be a taco truck. I think he needs a couple more taco trucks ordered, but fellowship doesn't happen around a taco. I think it's really important for us to hear this, that You know, sometimes we use that word loosely for Christian communication and and speaking to one another, but here Christian fellowship is not defined by talking. It's defined as a partnership in the gospel. So, So let's build that groundwork for what he's defining here. First, you begin with the idea of what the gospel is. The gospel is that message of Jesus Christ. And really, that story of the rescue of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, goes back to the very foundation of how God created us to enjoy fellowship and his goodness. And mankind, having sinned, abandoned and jeopardized the goodness of God in relationship with God. Having become sinners, we we have no right to enter the presence of God or receive his goodness. Jesus Christ died for sinners so that sin would no longer be a risk and and no longer be an impediment keeping us away from God, so that through the forgiveness Christ offers, we can be reconciled to God and restored to the joy of fellowship. There's a theology of goodness. All good things and every good thing only comes from God. This world fails to see that, fails to recognize that the goodness it experiences, the kindness of God, is like the front porch inviting us into God's household. Instead, the world steals off the front porch the good things of God and runs away from him and does not want to enter the household of God. The gospel preaches the goodness of God and how the door to God's grace is opened wide so that we might enter his household by faith, repenting of our sins. This is the message of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't just stop there. The gospel message the apostle would tell us, is something that leads to all of life. Having entered into this gospel relationship with God, we are now in the household of God. We live as his household. We are family members. We obey God. We are loyal to him. This is the metaphor that Hebrews chapter 2 tells us. We are, we are members of his household. First John would indicate that because we're in his household, because we are his children, we carry a spiritual imprint like his DNA. So I'm kind of tallish and have a big nose, just like my dad. And God says that that's true spiritually, that, that we should reflect the character of God. So the apostle for the rest of Philippians will be challenging the church to continue pursuing a walk that is worthy of the gospel. Because the gospel is not merely the front door you cross the threshold. It's the description of how you live in that whole household of grace. So when the apostle is speaking about partnership and gospel ministry, he is referring to that message about Jesus Christ that saves men and that message that sanctifies them. Okay, so don't merely think of evangelism as gospel ministry. Think of also the work of calling men and women to keep following after Christ. Okay, that's the gospel. Partnership. What does a real gospel partnership look like? A few months ago, we had the joy of sending a missionary overseas to Southeast Asia. What does gospel partnership look like with him? Some of you are stirred and have considered missions, and maybe the Lord is saying, stay put. Live in the states, but you have this burden for missions, I think this passage defines the outlet of that burden, that that pressure that God is putting on you to support missions. It is defined by this type of word here, a gospel partnership. Okay, so if you were to cover the rest of the book of Philippians and to look at some other texts of scripture, you would see so many ways he defines gospel partnership. This is what we mean by the word fellowship, by the way. If you go to chapter 1, verse 19, if you look down there with me real quickly, he is, he is speaking of, of their partnership with him. He says, for I know that through your prayers. So one of the ways he's defining that gospel partnership that he's so thankful for is they are doing what for him? They're praying for him through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus. This will turn out for my deliverance. He knows they're praying for him, and he's so confident in their faithful representation before the throne of grace, he knows he will receive the grace of rescue. So confident. Verse 20, It's my eager expectation hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Now look at the type of deliverance, and he starts to define it out. It doesn't mean he won't die. When I think of deliverance, I think of not dying, right? Like, you're in prison, you're going to stand up in front of others and defend the gospel, and you think that deliverance means rescue from death. That's not his point. Real deliverance he would picture here as deliverance from fear and oppression that would lead him to silence the message of the gospel. So here's what partnership is. In this text, it is that by prayer, Paul is being strengthened so that in front of Caesar himself, the gospel would not be silenced or whispered to save his own skin, but that with boldness and clarity, the gospel would be spoken because Caesar's one hope of rescue is the gospel of Jesus Christ. How confident is he that not only they are praying, but that God is listening to the prayers of the saints in Philippi, 800 miles away from where he's in prison. It's not merely prayer. Look in in chapter 2, verse 25. He's sending them Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is their servant. Look again in verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So this man they sent to him got sick and almost dies. Paul is sending him back because Epaphroditus knows that they know that he's sick. And knowing that he's sick, he knows the Philippians will be filled with concern for him. And so to relieve that concern and that burden about his sickness, Paul says, you need to go back so they know you're healthy. So the partnership in the gospel is not merely a faithful prayer. They've sent a messenger who almost loses his life in sickness just to encourage Paul. They are committed to strengthening him in his ministry, not merely by prayer, but through ministering to him in person by sending someone in the the Roman Empire almost a thousand miles to encourage and strengthen this man in prison. Continue reading. Verse 27, indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor uh, such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. It's helpful for us to at least get a little bit of a theological perspective. Epaphroditus was serving and encouraging Paul. Paul says he was working for Christ. There's this recognition in in Scripture, if you read the New Testament carefully, that God very rarely does direct work. God's grace was ministered to the Apostle Paul by Epaphroditus, not by some magical ministry of the Holy Spirit, but by a faithful servant who traveled probably by foot and maybe by horseback hundreds of miles to meet a man in prison and to pray with him and encourage him and let him know the church in Philippi loved him, Probably to give him food and money for more food, because Roman prisons were not known for their hospitality. And oftentimes you were accountable for your own food while in prison. And Epaphroditus comes and in that dark maritime prison, probably gets near death serving the apostle. And the Apostle Paul says he was serving Christ. Again, we're talking about what it means to be a partner in the gospel ministry. It is not merely like, hey, we're buddies. You're on my prayer card, on my fridge, and we pray for you once a year. It is is a commitment to labor in prayer, it is a commitment to serve and encourage and help and assist. We go a little further. Chapter 4, verse 14. It's that same word for fellowship, except he has the word share in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to participate to fellowship in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving. Second Corinthians says they had deep poverty I think extreme poverty is the way the ESV translates it. So as they're giving their money, it's not like you have a wealthy guy who will never miss $10,000 and writes a check. It's that you have many poor people who are scraping together out of poverty all that they can hand to Paul, and they send it with Epaphroditus, and Paul says, thank you for partnering with me, verse 14, by giving. By giving. By giving. So partnership in the gospel is not merely prayer. It is real tangible uh, encouragement, verbal encouragement, physical presence. It is help. It is financial support. I think if you were to look in in chapter 1 carefully, you would recognize that it's also partnership in suffering. It is also to likewise carry the gospel. In other words, we don't partner with people like sending Navy SEALs into a mission that we're never going to do, and we're glad they're trained, but we're glad we don't have to do it. Partnership in the gospel means that what we do is we are also doing the same thing we're sending agents to do. We are all giving the gospel, talking about the gospel, speaking of Jesus Christ, telling people to walk worthy of the gospel. We are all partners by doing those things. I think one of the dangers in the church might be the thought that we hire pastors and professionals and missionaries to do the work for us. This is what I do with my grass. I hire someone else to do it. He does better than me, and he probably does it cheaper than me. I don't have to think about it. They do it way faster than me. Right? They're in and out, and they get it done, and that's a guy who's paid to do it, so I don't have to. The gospel partnership that Paul is speaking of here includes the Philippians also doing gospel work. While they may be thousands or, excuse me, hundreds of miles away, they're likewise carrying the mantle of sharing the message of Jesus Christ with other citizens of Philippi. They are talking to other Christians within the church about following after Jesus. This is what it means to be a gospel partner. So as we consider how we support our missionaries, it cannot be merely prayer. Nor could it be merely like, hey, God bless you, have a good time, we'll see you in four years. Real gospel partnership is a devotion to the person, a commitment to the message they're sharing, so that we pray for the advance of the message, we we pray for the encouragement of their soul, we pray for their physical safety, we give them finances as much as God has burdened us to do, we do it sacrificially, and we join them in the labor in our locale wherever we be. It is a big, big call, okay? If I were just to say this, no one who is godly can avoid gospel partnerships. No one who loves Jesus is not involved in gospel partnerships. Gospel partnerships are not for the super-Christian. They are for those who know what we know about the message of Jesus Christ. It transcends culture. It transcends languages, It transcends the darkness and the blockage in the human heart that keeps people from loving Christ. It is the message that penetrates the hard-hearted and saves them. It is the message that makes our kids go from quirky little rebels who find creative ways to sin and destroy things, who hurt their siblings, and transforms that chaos of your home into a place where that same child, years later, is holy and loves Jesus. No technique of parenting will do that. Only the grace of the message of Jesus Christ can do that. What will save people in Islamic countries that are blinded to the sweetness of Jesus Christ other than the gospel? It is only by the power of gospel anyone is saved. What will lead you to holiness and communion with God if not the gospel? Nothing. It is is the commitment that we have a message that transcends human depravity and through the power of the Spirit brings dead people to life. It is this confidence that causes us to enter into partnerships. I grew up in Wisconsin. I like Green Bay Packers. I am in a loose, sloppy partnership with all good people everywhere. They would also be called Green Bay Packer fans. That type of partnership is a weak, pale, shabby comparison to the partnership we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet you will find Green Bay Packer fans in the middle of the Raiders stadium cheering like fools for their team. And you will hardly find a Christian that will put $10 into an offering plate for the gospel of Jesus Christ or embarrass themselves by telling a coworker that the hope to their marriage is that they would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. It is sad that a poor and shabby comparison of fellowship in a sports team, it has an overwhelming sense of boldness and joy when compared to many Christians and their commitments and cost for the gospel true Christian community is marked by a sacrifice that is willing to do what God asks to do no matter the cost for the sake of the advance of the message that saves and sanctifies. Because it's not merely a message, it is the glory of our king to be spoken of by his people. It is glorious for our king to be rumored of among the halls of his church It is the glory of our king and the praise of his name that causes us to speak to others because he's glorious. Jesus Christ has never failed to save anyone he's tried to save. Jesus Christ has never failed to sanctify anyone that he sends his spirit to sanctify. Jesus Christ has never failed anyone ever. Do you believe that? Can we all feel a little bit of conviction then when we're quiet? A little bit of shame for having been quiet when we should have spoken his name. This is the type of partnership that energizes and excites Paul when he considers the Philippians. They bought in with their souls to the devotion and the commitment towards Jesus that led them to support and energize his servants in going out to the nations. You should recall that Philippi is also the city that warmly greeted Paul for his gospel ministry. They beat him, they stoned him, and then they threw him in prison. So when Paul speaks of gospel participation, he is not talking about a Christian city. Where when you say, hey, I'm a Christian, people are like, oh, welcome in. We love Christians. He's speaking to a city that basically left him for dead. This is not a city where it's easy to share the gospel of Christ. And yet the Philippians are called to, in this letter, boldly continue to hold forth the name of Christ. Okay, so the first ingredient, first way we define someone who is able to bring joy to the apostle and praise to our God is that they are committed to gospel partnerships. Committed to it. Number two, they are committed to a steadfast partnership. Committed to a steadfast partnership. Some of you have have been committed to something for a short window of time. You're like a fad diet. I'm gonna lose weight, I'm gonna do this thing. Two months later, that diet is gone. New habits, right? Like, January 1st comes around. There's a whole new me. Two weeks later, there is no new you. We've all been there, right? Like, like, it is really hard to make deep change. Yet the apostle is celebrating. Look in verse 6. Lasting change. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work. Now, verse 6 starts off with this connecting word and kind of loses it there. But it's like, being sure of this. That goes back to the previous discussion. So what is he sure of? What is the good work here? It's gospel partnership. Some people, I think, wrongly take it as just generally salvation. He has a particular movement in this text where he's calling people to recognize we are co-laborers together. We are partnering together in moving this message that saves men from sin. This is the good work then to give towards it, to participate through prayer, to speak to others, to call them to follow. This is the work. So what causes people to endure? Because certainly that's hard. When you read later in this text, come down to the end of the passage, end of the chapter, uh, verse one, excuse me, chapter one with me. Verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Okay, so he's calling them again to living like that gospel partner, living in that gospel partnership, right? That word worthy means as fits. So live in such a way as fitting, as responds to appropriately the gospel. So that whether I come come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. There's opponents that are causing them real substantive fear. Like they're threatening them. Again, this is the place where Paul was beaten and imprisoned. Continue reading. It has been been graced. That's the word granted means graced. To you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had. What conflict did he have in Philippi? And here that I still have. They're engaged in that same conflict. Who's also suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's not merely Paul. He's not saying, thank you for serving me in my suffering. He is saying, so don't stop living for Christ, even though it's hard. Strive side by side. Fight side by side for the gospel, even though you're suffering. We were graced with the gift of suffering. Don't quit the gospel in suffering. So where's this hope coming from that they'll stand firm together with one mind against the hurt, against the suffering? Come back to verse six, chapter one. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Where's his hope that they won't quit? It's out in there, right? I'm confident that he who began this work, will bring it to completion. In fact, go back just a little bit into verse five. I am, he says, I am so thankful for this gospel partnership. I am praising God for it. This partnership was from the first day. Until when? Now. And it will continue until when? Do you guys get those three markers of time? When did they start this gospel partnership? Now, I don't know if he's talking about the Philippian jailer, But you remember when Paul and Silas are in jail and they're singing and God breaks open the prison, where is Paul later that evening? Where does he go? The jailer's home. What happens to the whole jailer's household? I just want you to consider for a second, you're in a Roman city and one of the key prisoners that they booked that day is at your house instead of in jail. So severe was the penalty for letting prisoners go that when the jail is busted open and he assumes the prisoners are gone, the jailer is going to commit suicide. He's about ready to literally fall on his sword. What type of penalty do you think you would suppose that man would get for having a prisoner at his house? Not only that, he's comforting the prisoner. He is binding his wounds and giving aid to him. Do you think the city will look lightly on this? Well, in fact, it ends up serving the city officials when they find out Paul's a Roman citizen, and they're like, ooh, we shouldn't have done that, right? Like, I cannot imagine that that jailer gets rescued, except Paul's citizenship would have condemned the city officials. The partnership of the Philippian church was marked by a willingness to absorb the cost from the day they were saved. From the first day until the writing of this letter, when will this partnership end? When gospel ministry ends, when Jesus comes. Which to me is one of the reasons I think we ought to look at this text and recognize that Paul's assuming we are inheritors of this call. When does gospel ministry stop? When do we stop partnering with other believers to see the gospel move into our communities, to be preached to those who are lost, to go to the foreign nations, to be declared to those who are captive to sin that they might be released and forgiven? When do we stop working in gospel partnerships? When Jesus calls us home, and the day is finished, and he brings judgment. It's a sobering thought because we should be faithful until the Lord calls us out of this world and sends his son into it. And God stops the economy of the nations and he stops the warring and the factions and he reigns as king. That's when gospel ministry for the church finally reaches its conclusion. His his confidence is that God does this. Look again in the text and just notice the the ways in which he reminds us that gospel partnerships depend upon the grace and the power of God. Verse three, who gets glory for gospel partnerships? I think God. Because of your partnership, verse five continues. Verse six, I am confident that he who began the work in you will complete it. So you do gospel partnerships only And primarily because God is cultivating in you a love and a confidence in this message and a willingness to be like his son and pay the cost of it. He continues on. You you look down in verse 7. For you are partakers. It's the same word again for fellowship and partnership. You are partners with me in what? You guys catch that? Grace. The grace of what? (laughs) You guys read the next phrase? the grace of imprisonment. It's really not the grace of imprisonment. It's the grace of the defense of the gospel while in prison. That's his point. That's so encouraging. You guys feel better about it now? God supports you so that you can have the grace of imprisonment to share the gospel better. And think about what God has done. He has brought Paul into the very household of Caesar so that in the highest halls of power, the message of Christ is being preached. It's probably Nero. The Roman Empire would be filled with people saying that Caesar is Lord, and yet in his own household, his soldiers say Jesus is Lord. Now, how does this happen? It happens through this grace that God is, is causing the Philippians to partner with at deep cost themselves at the discipline of regular prayer and through the commitment of men like Epaphroditus to encourage gospel workers to continue on. He is causing and stirring and strengthening and moving the church to carry the message to the nations, to carry the message to their neighbors, to speak the message of Jesus Christ to those within their church who are struggling to be holy like Christ calls them to be. This is partnership in the gospel, and it only happens through the grace and the power of Christ. That's what Philippians 2 will say. God is at work in us to make us willing. None of you even want to be in a gospel partnership without Christ. And then he empowers us, so he doesn't leave us just with a big wanter and no power. Have you ever, like, wanted something and have no ability to do it? My daughter and I were having a discussion about paying for college. It felt very much like this. She wants to go to college. It's a lot of money. A lot of money. Like, I can buy a car every year, or she can go to college. (laughs) Like, it's crazy. And here's my daughter, who does not... I don't have enough money to buy a car every year. And the price tag in college is a new car every year. And she's thinking, I can't possibly do this. How much more... High the mountain to climb to minister the gospel. How much more expensive to social standing and comfort to share the gospel than to save a few thousand dollars? There is no one in this room capable without the grace of Christ. There is no one in this room who wants to without the grace of Christ. So, just as an application, can I just encourage you to pray for gospel partnerships? Pray that you would be a good partner. Pray that God would give you the desire to be one. Pray that God would give you the ability to be one. And then I would encourage you to do it. And here's what I mean. Gospel partnerships are marked by prayer, financial sacrifice, personal encouragement and love, and then speaking the message of Christ and living the message of Christ. That's what a gospel partnership is. So pray and then trust God to give you the strength to do it and do it. God gives us power as we serve him, not before we serve him. This is, I think, the grace that comes with faith. So here's some signs. We've all been looking at symptoms for the last two years. If you lose your taste, you might have a problem. So here's some, here's some symptoms I think I see within my own heart or our church or their culture where I can recognize gospel partnerships are not being energized by the grace of Christ to be reliable, to be steadfast. Erratic attendance and no-show Sundays. Easy anger with others and a judgmental attitude towards believers who are struggling. We are quick to see the failures and the incompetencies of other believers. We have an inflated estimate of our own sacrifices for the church. We are quick to take offense and we magnify the weaknesses of others. We have a failure to give financially and sacrificially with joy. We have a temptation to expend much of our church and little from ourselves. We have a failure to pray faithfully for our church family. There's an inability to admit we are wrong and, and a disinterest in serving if it will require us to be uncomfortable. There are certain ministries that it seems like it's, it's as though we are pulling teeth. There are certain ministries where I feel like I have to constantly put up a gate to keep people out of them. And I, I don't mean to be condemnatory in that. I just want to encourage you to check yourself. There's a reason James says not many of us should be teachers. It's because everyone wants to talk to others about what they should do. The Bible would encourage us to start in the mirror. How are you doing? Before you're competent to teach others, you better teach yourself. Okay, your steadfastness in gospel ministry is a result of the submission to the Spirit and the supply of his grace when we are obedient. Let me say that again. Your steadfastness in gospel ministry is a result of submission to the Spirit and the supply of his grace as you are obedient. Finally, let me just review. Commitment to gospel partnership, or gospel community by steadfast gospel work so that it ultimately can be seen in deep, personal partnerships. And of anything, this is the most convicting section for me. It's most convicting because I think I have a tendency to be very um, mechanical. If you're on my team, I am for you but I don't maybe love you. You're useful as long as you help us win the game, but I really don't care about your mother. I just want you to play hard, work hard, and be a good teammate. Look at how the apostle speaks of his sweet friends in Philippi. After calling them to see the confidence that he has, verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. That word feel is such a troubling translation. It should be think. It's not a feeling thing here. It will be in just a moment. But if you go to chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I want you to all be of the same mind, same word, same exact Greek word. When he talks about the two that are, are, are not in agreement with each other, Eudea and Syntyche, in chapter 4, verse 2, it's because they have separate minds, and they need to be unified in mind together. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says you need to have the mind of Christ. Same word here. So here's the thought. It is right for me to think this way about you. And the ESV is kind of backloading that idea that's coming, that, that there's feelings involved here. There are definitely feelings involved. Notice this. It's right for me to feel this way about you or to think this way about you because I hold you in my heart. That feels really squishy. <laughs> like... Kind of cringy. If I see what are you men after the church, I'm like, I just want you to know all week I've been holding you in my heart. Like You'd like disengage the handhold and be like. <laughs> all right, it just feels a little cringy in our culture. But here you have this man who's in prison. He's isolated from all of society. He probably, if he has any light, it's a candle. It's cold, it's dank, and he's alone. And he's praying, because what else is he going to do? He's already evangelized all the guards. And every time he thinks of the Philippians, his heart is filled with joy, this text says. Go back over the text. Look in, in, in verse 3. It says, I thank God in my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, what's that next little word? All. As we keep going down through the text, look in verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about whom? You all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all. Verse eight. "God is my witness, how I yearn, I miss you." I'm really slow in the alls this morning. that would be obvious after like a third one, all was what we're going after. Okay, so I want you to consider this for a moment. In a church like the size of ours, you might love most of us, but there's got to be someone, right? Like, there's that guy. You know, you've had a little bit of a conflict. He said your kid did something. Your kid never does that thing. There's got to be some person who, like, their laugh at least is like, ugh. Consider that Paul is talking to church, and he reminds them, That his love and affection for them is not grounded in feelings or circumstances or personalities or laughters. It's grounded in the fact that Christ has redeemed them. They share together in the advance of the message of Christ that saves and sanctifies sinners. And he says later in this text that he is dying for their movement towards Christ like an offering being poured out, he says. He loves them all. Not because they're so amazing, but because this partnership has bound him to them. He loves them. Again, it is right for me to think this way or, or, or feel this way, as the ESV says. That word right speaks of righteousness. That's the same word. Same root word. He's not saying, hey, listen, don't get the EBGBs because I say I love you. It's okay that I love you. He's saying it would be immoral for him not to. It is righteous for him to respond to their joining him in the gospel by holding them in deepest affection. I hold you in my heart. I'm just going to point it out because I always love this. For God is my witness how I yearn for you, I miss you, with the splagna, that means stomach, of Christ, speaks to that inner person. And we might say we get butterflies in our stomach. It's like his being longs to see their faces. Is that how you feel Saturday? Saturday? Sunday or you're like oh I have nursery oh I feel a headache I better let someone know like I long what would keep this man away on a Saturday night like 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 Saturday night is closing he's thinking about Sunday what do you think would keep this man away from gathering with the Philippians the next morning do you think anything barring, like the world burning, is going to keep him from seeing these people face to face? Let me read it again. It is right for me to think this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of me, of with me, of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, I yearn for you with the very affections of Christ. That's a whole different way of looking at church life, isn't it? It's a whole different way of viewing one another. It makes Packer fans look like schlubs. And rightfully so. Green Bay Packers are not going to be in heaven because they're Green Bay Packers. Your company's not getting to heaven. Americans don't make it to heaven because they're Americans. We have loyalties, and we carry these flags, whether it's sports emblems, whether it's national flags, whether it's our corporate logos on our hats and shirts. We carry emblems around us that tell us where we're loyal, how we participate, what we love, what we live for. And the Christian's logo is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it will bring suffering. And Paul calls that a grace. That gospel will save sinners. And so if you're wearing the logo and it gives you an opportunity to speak to others about the goodness of Christ, and it also brings suffering, Paul says, bring it on. He doesn't pull a sweater over the logo. He says, it's right for me to feel this way, to think this way, because of our fellowship in the gospel, which has led to him including them in the defense and proclamation in prison. Are they in prison with him? Perhaps I just might have been for a while. But by their prayers, by their financial support, it's as though the Philippians are going through this with him. So where does this leave us? So let's all just start with this thought. I must have such a deep commitment to gospel fellowship for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ that I will speak about him and live for him more than anything or anyone else. Super basic, right? Right? And yet, how many of us speak about Jesus Christ on a regular basis to those outside of our church? How many of us speak about Jesus Christ to those inside of our church, outside of its gathering? Right, like Sundays for Jesus, but if you come to my house on Friday and we're going to grill burgers and go swimming, don't talk about Jesus. I mean, I would never say that, but I mean, how many times have you gone over to someone in our church's house and... You feel kind of awkward saying, hey, I I know you love your five-year-old, but I think the Lord would be really pleased if you paid attention a little bit more. Right? Like, no, you don't say that stuff because you do not go after someone else's kids. Like, well, moms and dads need to be encouraged to be good parents. This is what it means to be gospel-centered, to live for the gospel of Christ. Gospel fellowship requires the grace and the power of God. It's more than mere friendship or chit-chat. It is more than simply loyalty to a brand. It is a commitment to suffer, to sacrifice, to live for, and love the Savior. So we help others by prayer. We defend the gospel verbally. We walk in a way that's worthy of the gospel, as Paul says later in this letter. Gospel fellowship often withers when people neglect one another. The message and the people who say they believe it Give us a focus, not only for our faith, but for our affections. Do not tell us that you love Jesus and do not love his people. I I really am convicted by those last thoughts, because I tend not to be a very affectionate person. So when I see Paul just like dumping his heart, and he does it in such a way that he's calling us to appreciate how God has you brought these sweet people together, the Philippians and the apostle, in a partnership that encourages both, and we might be jealous and pursue the apostle's pattern. So are you pursuing an affection for the people of Christ? As we do these things more and more, the gospel partnership we share together, through which we not only send missionaries, but we hold them, We encourage them and we keep them loving the Lord and speaking his name to the nations. Grows and strengthens in us. Do you think we should send more missionaries to the mission field? Yes, we should. Should we support financially sending of more missionaries? Yes, we should. That means you should be praying for and giving more. Right? Like that's, that's, we cannot multiply the people we send if we don't multiply the people and multiply the base by which we send them. So let's be praying for these things. Do you pray for the growth of this church in the gospel? Do you pray for the growth of the people of it in the gospel? Right? So there's a prayer that people next door, people in this community would come to Christ But we should also be praying for one another that the gospel would take a stronger hold of them, that it would sanctify their homes, that it would lead them to witness to their children, that the gospel would transform the people in here today and save the people who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. Pray for that. Okay, so let me just remind you of what I think Paul finds so encouraging from the Philippians. They, at deep sacrifice, are committed to gospel partnerships. They are dependent on God, and that will lead to that steadfastness. So they're gospel partnerships that are steadfast, and there's a deep affection that fills them. It's not just mechanical. It's not just careless. We're doing the same thing, so of course we want them to do good. It is that they deeply care for one another. So, As I consider that in my own heart, there are multiple ways in which I realize I'm falling short and need to grow. Perhaps that's you. As you consider the end of this prayer, he reminds us Jesus is coming. So here's his his thought then. He is rejoicing in them in such a way that he encourages them to keep pressing on because Jesus is coming. So let me remind you, Jesus is coming. Has the gospel transformed you? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ to save you from your sin? Are you praying for the advance of the gospel? Are you sacrificially giving to the gospel? Do you love the people who embrace the gospel? This is what gospel partnerships are, and if you don't have them, you are not a faithful, healthy Christian. You cannot be one without gospel partnerships. This thing we do is never done alone. There is a symbol. It's a kind of iconic symbol in American history. Do you remember when... The American forces at the end of World War II are going through and trying to get the Japanese forces to surrender. And there's this moment on a small little island that's in some ways of no massive importance except for war strategy, in which the Americans, after a bloody, bloody battle, raise the flag And you probably couldn't name the battle or name the island, but you can picture this moment where this flag is being hoisted up. And probably as men are dying, several soldiers are pictured in silhouette lifting the American flag to stand high over this island in the South Pacific. You know the picture, don't you? Why would you think that a better, bigger, weightier flag of the gospel Could be carried by just you gospel partnerships are the necessary the necessary part of the advance of the message of christ partnerships we do not do this alone we need one another pray for one another love one another preach the gospel to one another hear the gospel from one another support the gospel sacrifice for the gospel we don't do this alone let's pray father in heaven thank you for your word Thank you for this encouraging thought that what causes the apostle's celebration is that he is sharing in a message that transcends time and culture with the people who are poor financially but spiritually rich. Father, we thank you that while we see the apostle's example, our church experiences that same joy and goodness. Encouraging conversations the support and the sending of missionaries, the love of one another that is centered around Christ. We thank you for the fruit we see within our own church family of the rich partnerships that we share in the gospel of Christ. And having said that, Lord, we also know that there is room to grow. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to consider the message of Christ, that we would think about and be willing to expend the relational cost by speaking of our Savior, by telling others about his work on the cross that saves men from sin. Lord, help us to love our Savior enough to be embarrassed for him. I also ask that uh, we would find much joy in speaking about him with one another, that there would be a joyful reception as others encourage us to follow Christ. I ask that it would lead to just a faithful, loving unity within our church family that you would amplify the love we have for one another, the affection and the richness we share in fellowship, that you might be glorified. Lord, I also ask that for those that might be in this room this morning who are looking on as outsiders, who neither share the fellowship nor know the Savior that centers us, that you would help them to recognize that there will never be eternal goodness if they don't have the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bring people to a place where they turn from sin and look to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross who paid the price for sins. And by looking and believing in his work, they would commit themselves to Christ himself so that they might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.